We were talking about the imitation game and how we're called, Ephesians 5, to imitate God. And I want to talk about something I believe that we do pretty well here at this church. But how many of you know that if your kids are picking up the clothes in their room one day, you don't want to lighten up on them, right? You know, you want to, you want to reinforce it, keep going. Come on, you're doing a good job. Keep picking up your clothes. So I believe we can always hear more about stuff we're doing well. So we're going to talk about John chapter 8 today. Man, this is super important to me as a person, by the way, because I believe this is one of the, I believe this is one of the key evidences that we are imitating God when we can operate this way, especially in our culture today and how divisive it is and how divided it is. Um, I believe the church gets this right. Sky's the limit that people don't experience this on a regular basis. So, so make sure you're paying attention. Take notes if you, if you have a pen or whatever. If not, take the pen of the person next to you. John chapter 8, starting at verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Don't you love it how people could try to trap Jesus and he's just like, whatever. I'm going to draw on them. I'm going to draw on the dirt. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left. He was left there with the woman standing there with him. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Father, we thank you this morning. The perfect example of grace and truth. And we pray that after today we'd be able to mimic you better than ever before. We pray that your church would be a church of grace and truth. We thank you for the, for the example you set before us. We pray that it will be what flows out of us, God, your grace and your truth. In Jesus' mighty name we pray and everyone said, amen and amen. All right, look at your neighbor and ask him, are you a truth teller or a grace giver? Go ahead and ask him, are you a truth teller? They already know what you are, by the way. It's not a mystery to them if they've been around you for a while. They already know. Whether you're full of grace or you're only a truth detector, right? You know, we get that naturally. We don't have to work at it very hard, do we? You're either very gracious or you're very annoying. You don't realize it because you think you're telling the truth. But we, we, get, it, we get it naturally. We don't have to work it. Some of us are just bent more towards being gracious. Some of us are bent more towards the law. And, and that, that's cute. 
But we all like more gracious people, don't we? Come on. Don't we like... And then there's the people like, I'll tell it the way it is. And everybody's like, we know who they are. Grace and truth. The Bible says that Jesus came in John chapter 1 full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. It, it, it talks about, it means like he was the perfect combination of both things. Because you know that you can be really, really graceful and, and ignore the truth, can't you? Like, oh, you didn't do anything wrong. It'll heal. You know, you're missing an arm now. Or you can be the exact opposite of all you do is point out the wrong. Jesus came and gave us an example of what it looks like to be the perfect mixture of both. He came full of grace and truth. You can't be God and ignore the truth, but you also can't be God and not have grace. Because he said he came to save those that are lost, that he would that none would perish, but everyone would inherit eternal life, that it was God's goal from the outset, the, the proto-evangelium, Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, where he said, where he said listen, this is how it's going to work out. He may bruise your heel, but, but he'll crush your head. That, that he's sending a Savior right after Adam and Eve sinned. He was, he, he was foreshadowing that the Savior would come, that grace was coming to the earth. God wasn't ignoring truth when he sent Jesus. He brought truth to the earth and presented grace to us. So here we have a story of a lady caught in sin. Now, what always strikes me about this story, if you've read it before, is that uh, it happened during what's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Tabernacles. It was really a celebration of of, uh, how Israel had walked through the wilderness and God had led them. So what they would do is they would make stick huts and they would live in the huts. It was like a big, it was like a whole camp out without the tarps. So they would make these little huts and they would live in them for a week and they would, they would celebrate. And on the eighth day of the festival, they would, they would have a day of rest. And, and let me tell you, back in, in the Jewish um, tradition, rest was a serious thing. Now, you weren't allowed to do anything. You weren't allowed to ignite a fire. You weren't allowed to pick up wood. You weren't allowed to work at all. It was rest. Somebody say, we need to bring back rest. Right? So... More than likely, what happened here was they caught her the night before. Now, let me back up a little bit to chapter 7. We find out that Jesus' brothers were trying to encourage him to go uh, to this festival because it was, it was a requirement for all adult males to be at three of these type festivals. This was one of them. And so they were trying to get him to go and make his public entrance. They said, hey, you can show up at this thing and show everybody who you are. You know, do some of your stuff. The problem was, it also indicates that his brothers didn't even believe he was a Messiah at the time. So they were just trying to get him to go and, and make this public statement about who he was and what he could do and all these things. The trouble is, is that by this time, the teachers of the law and the re- religious leaders are already plotting on how to try to kill him, and Jesus knew that. So walking into the crowd going, hey, I'm here, probably wasn't the wisest thing he'd ever done. So what he did was, is he waited until the thing had gotten underway, and then he kind of went on his own low-key to this festival. So the Bible says that he started teaching people in the temple courts. So on this occasion, he gets up, and he's there at dawn, and he begins to teach people. And these 
men, these religious leaders, bring to him a woman caught in the act of adultery. Now, nowhere in this story does it say that really she wasn't caught in the act of adultery. They just made it up. Jesus never disputes that. But if you look into it, you realize that they probably had caught her the night before. So you can imagine what her night had been like. That she uh, was probably ridiculed all night. And now to top it off, they're going to bring her before Jesus, not for the sake of making her feel better, but for the sake of dragging her in front of a big group of people to accuse her in front of the one that they were going to trap. So they were essentially using her and discarding her at the same time, just saying, you're not worth anything to us. We're actually just using you as a tool to get to somebody else. We could care less about you. You know what always concerns me is when the church does things and there's a disregard for people when they do things. You know, for a long time, the church was uh, predominantly a truth teller. And, and don't, don't get me wrong here when I preach this sermon today and, and, and you say, I believe Pastor Chris thinks everything's okay. Because I don't. I don't think things in my life are okay all the time, and I know, I know things in your life aren't okay. That sin is sin, right? We don't need help pointing that out sometimes. Sometimes we do need help pointing it out. But for the most part, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you and he helps to reveal that to you, right? So this woman probably didn't need uh, anybody reminding her of her lifestyle, that it was sinful. I'm sure she knew inherently that it was sinful. But the, the thing that crosses my mind when I think about this is no... No lady wakes up uh, one morning and says, man, I've accomplished so much in my life. God has blessed me. I think I want to try out prostitution. Nobody wakes up and says, I'd love to be a drug addict. Nobody wakes up and says, I'd love to spend time in prison. Nobody wakes up. There's, there's always a path to get there, right? James talks about that path and, and how we are tempted and it turns in full-fledged into sin and then to death. And it's always a pathway. Nobody wakes up and says, well, I think I'll commit adultery today. <laughs> the sun's out. Why not? It's always a path to get there. But what, when, we, when, we, when we veer towards the truth-telling only aspect of, of life, sometimes we, we ignore the path that it took to get to where the person was. So you may not see the pain that caused her to be where she is. You may not see the trouble. Now, you might not have picked the same choice as she did, but until you walk in her shoes, until you take a couple steps at least. And so they were very quick to just disregard any, uh, anything about the woman. And one, one, of my, one of the things that I love about this church is that, is that you care about other people. You know how many times I've had people come to this church and say, man, it's been 20 years since I've been in church. The last time I was in church, I had somebody turn around and look at me and say, I can't believe you wore that to church. And um, she said, I never went back. She said, I came in here and it didn't seem like it mattered what I wore. And I said, I was like, obviously, look at me. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But that we care about the story behind the person. We care about the story about how you got to where you are and, 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 and how it's impacted your life. Because I don't think you can understand people's decision-making process until you can understand what's gone into them making the decision. And so 
I know this is going to be a little uncomfortable with some of the truth tellers in here, but listen. I'm not disputing that she was caught in the act of adultery. I'm just saying it might help to understand how she got there. And, and in this occasion, these men were not worried about how she got there by any stretch. All they wanted to do was use her to accuse Jesus. And she was disposable, as a matter of fact, because they felt like that Jesus couldn't deny stoning her to death, that he was going to have to go down their path. And so they felt like we can get rid of two birds with one stone. She's disposable, and now we can get rid of him. So they take her to him, and they embarrass her again in front of a group of people. So I would say that at the heart of Christ, God so loved the world. Not the trees, not the, not the rivers, not the mountains. He so loved you. It was you that he loved, that he would send Jesus to die on the cross. And so anytime that we're ready to speak the truth to somebody, like you got a bowl full of guts, man. You're like, I'm going to tell them how it is right now. Right? Anytime. Remember that God died for that individual. Remember that he sent Jesus, and Jesus hung on the cross brutally to redeem that person. And that it matters how they got there. And that it matters how we convey the truth to them. Amen? Now watch this. So they had no regard for the woman. They didn't care about her story. They didn't care how she ended up in this situation. They did not care. They were just trying to eliminate her and trap Jesus. And so they brought up the law. Don't you like rules? Some of you really like rules. You're like, they're breaking the rules. I'm like, that's why they're there. Now, now I love my wife more than you do. Trust me. Um, but my wife is more of a rule follower than I am. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? You're like, I thought he was the preacher. The only reason I'm a preacher today is because my wife's a rule follower. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> we have signed documents before, and I'm like, ah, oh, they're fine. We bought a house one time, and, I, and so I went to the bank, got everything ready. I bring it to her, and she's like, Chris, isn't right. I'm just like, just sign it. What's it matter? And she's like, I'm not signing it till you fix it. I'm like, you don't have any grace. <laughs> no. So I had to go back to the bank and go, hey, listen, you know, my wife's an accountant. <laughs> you know how it is. <laughs> Could you fix all this stuff and make it right like you should have done the first? So anyway... Some of you, some of you, with my wife excluded, uh, some of you that are really bent towards the truth, we forget that God was full of grace as well. And, and so we, we get really worked up when people are breaking the rules, really worked up when people are sinning, realizing that, that we know a little bit about the truth, and so we need to convey that. Now, here's the issue. Paul says that we look through a glass dimly, that we don't understand everything that goes on, and we don't even understand the truth totally. Because you would have to be a truth scholar to understand all of it. The issue is these men were truth scholars, and they weren't even obeying it all the way. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus, they shouldn't have only drugged the woman up here before him. They should have drugged the man, too. Because if you're going to be an adherent to the law, which you need, if you're going to be an adherent to the law, and that's where you're going to get your righteousness of life, then you better be an adherent to the whole law, not just a part of it. So don't come dragging some woman caught in adultery and let the guy go. <laughs> All the ladies like, yeah, that's right. 
why don't we stone a few men around here? We'll fix things. Now picture this. There are three of these festivals that men were mandatorily required to attend. If you put a bunch of men in the same place, sin is going to happen. <laughs> you can guarantee it. Uh, so you can imagine that many people in the same place. There's probably some, there's probably an underbelly to it. And this woman, somehow, we don't know her whole story, but somehow she had gotten caught up in a life like this. And so there's a willing man ready to take advantage of her. Little did she know that she'll be swept up by a bunch of willing men trying to take advantage of her in a different way, running her before Jesus, only to proclaim a law that they didn't understand. So they come to Jesus and they say, hey, listen, we caught her and they, right in the act of adultery. What are you going to do about it? Law of Moses says a stoner. But as I said before, they didn't understand the total law of Moses, or they at least weren't willing to adhere by it, so they, they leave out the fact that they didn't have a guy with them. Maybe they conveniently let him go. Maybe they said, hey, just keep your mouth shut. This will blow over by morning. So Jesus' response, oh, by the way, let me back up. If we're going to proclaim the truth with no grace, you better know it all. Because there's nothing that irritates me more than somebody getting it half right when they're accusing me of something. I did it, but you better get the accusation right. Accuse me of actually what I did, and let's be, let's be equally fair with the, with the, with the accusation. Don't, don't come at me with a half-truth and try to corner me with something. But that's the way our society works now, isn't it? Because the same thing that I could do last week, I can drag you before God this week. And it's even easier now because we have social media. I don't have to do it right in front of everybody. I can do it for everybody and not even have to be with you. Oh, we're really good at dragging people in front of the church now, aren't we? Can I say this? It really matters your motivation when you address the truth with somebody. You should write that down. My mo if I'm going to address sin in somebody else's life, my motivation better be right. My motivation better be right. Matthew chapter 18 is a great, Jesus lays out a great example of what this should look like. He says, listen, if you find your brother in sin, go to him. What do you mean on Facebook? No, 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 no. He said, you go to him. Personally, individually, privately. Go to him. And try to correct it. Well, that's going to make me uncomfortable, Lord. It would be way easier to use my passive-aggressive skills and just break the guy out on Facebook for everybody to see. And then we'll join him as a team, ridiculing him. And then he'll feel bad and correct himself. And I won't actually have to have an adult conversation with anyone. Wow, isn't that our society today? But Jesus said, go to him and address it personally between the two of you. And if that doesn't work, then take a couple more people with you. What do you mean? I got to go back again? Yeah, that's the part of what we call restoration. In Galatians, I believe it's chapter 6, verse 1, it says, if you catch a brother, Paul later on writes, if you catch someone in a sin, go and restore him. How? Gently. Man, if we could get gentle every now and then with sin. How about that? What's the motivation for us even addressing sin in somebody else's life? Jesus and Paul write to restore people because the same God that died for that person wants them restored back to him, right? 
So we should look at being able to address sin in each other's life as actually a privilege of restoration, a privilege of restoring that person, not, not the opportunity just to point something out and feel like we're better than them. Because I don't know about you, can I tell you a little deep, dark secret of mine? Everybody just went. Sometimes I like it when people mess up. Because it makes me feel better about myself. Oh, I know none of you are like that in here, right? You're like, oh, I feel sorry every time. No, no, no. When your neighbor doesn't mow their lawn for two weeks, what do you say? Let me go over and help. No, you say, my lawn always looks better than his. Hmm. No, we, we kind of feel there's just that little devil in us that wants to make you feel like you're a little more self-righteous. Like, I caught her in adultery. it it wasn't, and I think you should stone her. Forget about the fact that I've lusted after my neighbor's wife. We're just talking about her now, right? But the motivation has to be right because Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 says, listen, go to that person and you point it out. Why why am I pointing it out? Because we're going to point it out together, just just the two of us, because the the hope is that that person will be restored. Why am I going to go back again? The hope is I'm going to take a couple more people with me with the hope not to embarrass them, but to restore them. Why would you ever go to the third part, which says then take them before the church if that doesn't work? The reason is, is because the church is supposed to be a loving, gracious environment where you can get help with sin. Not a place where you drag somebody, all right, tell them what you did. You know what's very curious about Matthew chapter 18? If you go right after that, the conversation after that, Peter goes to Jesus and says, how many times do I need to forgive somebody? Seven. Because the standard was three back then. So Peter thinks, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say seven. So as soon as Jesus starts talking about, hey, listen, here's how to restore a brother in sin. If you find somebody in sin, go to them personally. Try to restore them. If, if that doesn't work, take two or three. Man, extend yourself out. Make this, take this out as far as you can take it. Why? Because you should forgive somebody over and over and over. And Peter goes to him and says, hey, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven? That's four more times than the normal average person in this culture would forgive somebody. Typically, we would forgive somebody three. So aren't, aren't, aren't I really good? Jesus says, Try 70 times 7. Don't ever give up. Peter's hit in the face with grace as he has never experienced before in that statement. And so the same men that dragged that woman before Jesus, trying to trap Jesus and trying to accuse her, don't know the law. And you know why? Let Let me say this. Why is it ever smart to argue with God about stuff that he created? <laughs> it's just crazy, isn't it? Don't we do that? You read about Job doing that. You read, you read about most humans doing that, about, about arguing with God about the law and whether it's good or not, arguing with God about everything and whether it's good or not. And God's just like, I don't get it. Everything I do is good, and yet you argue with me incessantly about how it's not. So could you imagine as a teacher of the law, actually showing up in front of the actual law, in front of actual truth, I'm the way, the life, and the... No man comes to the Father but by me. The guys who studied him come before him to argue what he created. That's insanity. 
so they, they stand before him, and, and, and immediately he's like, I don't, starts scribbling in the ground. Now watch this. This is awesome. Watch this. On the eighth day was a day of rest. On that day of rest, you were not allowed to do anything. You weren't allowed to pick up sticks. You weren't allowed to start a fire. You weren't even allowed to write two letters, conventional way you would write. You weren't allowed to do it. But in the Jewish tradition over the years, they had made caveats for certain things, and you were allowed to write in the dirt. (laughs) I'd never seen that before. I was studying some commentaries, and uh, the one writer pointed it out that it was an oral tradition that they were allowed to write in the dirt on the Sabbath, on the day of rest. So watch what Jesus does. They come to him and say, listen, we have no regard for this woman. We don't care how she got here. We don't care the devastation in her life. We don't care that we've humiliated her all night. We don't care that we've drugged her before you this morning. All we're worried about is trapping you and killing her. And we, so we're going to now present you with the thing that you came up with. Not only are we going to present it with you for you, we're going to present it halfway. And Jesus says nothing. Bends over. And he starts teaching them what the law, how much he knows about the law. Isn't that awesome? He starts writing in the dirt. And I wonder if they went, ooh. He knows every little caveat about the law. He knows things that we didn't think he'd know. He, he, man, he knows way more than we're expecting right now. I can imagine them getting a tad bit nervous when he started, leaned over. Now picture it, he's sitting down. That's the way they were teaching. So he's sitting down and picture him just leaning over a little bit, looking up at him. And he starts writing. Nobody knows what he was writing. But the Bible says that they continue to argue with him. It says he straightens up. And he says, you that are without sin, cast the first stone. And then he goes back to writing in the dirt. I get very cautious around people who preach truth with disregard for people's lives and actually don't have a full grasp of what the truth is. And here's how this plays out. We like to segregate everyone, don't we? We say things like this. All the drug users, right? As if they all signed up on Amazon or something. Like, yeah, that sounds like a good way to do it. Or we'll say, or we'll say things, we'll, we'll lump, we'll lump um, whatever your politically motivated group of people is. We'll lump them all together. And then we'll use truth to wipe them out, right? Well, it's the truth, right? It's sin, it's the truth. I mean, adultery is sin, we can't deny that, right? Amen? I thought, wow, we got to start over here at the church. We don't, like, nobody's saying amen because they don't even know what sin is. Like, uh, we thought adultery was fine. So what, what happens is we begin to categorize people according to their sin. And we start saying things like, fill in the blank. You know what? I'm going to step out of limb here. I've actually gotten phone calls before. <laughs> I love these phone calls. I love them. I really do like them. When they call me and say, you're not preaching about fill in the blank. 
And my response every time is, I'm glad that you decided to cherry pick one sin out of all of them. But if, I'm, but if I want to be true to it, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just preach a wide blanket of sin. Because if I, if I just come up here and I preach, oh, and I say something about homosexuality, maybe everybody goes, I was right, brother. But I could just as easily turn to gluttony, pride. And the truth of the matter is I could encompass more of you if I talked about gluttony than I could anything else. You're like, now you're meddling. (laughs) Now you're meddling. But what we do is we disregard people because of a sin they were committing when Jesus never did. So here we have this woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus is starting to write in the ground, and then they get up one by one, and they begin to walk away. Jesus looks at her and says, is there anyone here to accuse you? Is there anyone here to condemn you? Man, that's a good place to be, isn't it? Standing alone with Jesus at the end. Matthew chapter 18 says our motivation for moments like this is always restoration. Jesus, Jesus points it out. He's proving it to the people right in front of you. He's proving it to the accusers. You're trying to condemn somebody that I'm trying to save. Jesus displays the perfect mix of grace and truth right here. Notice that he wrote in the ground, but he didn't say anything about those men. Because even at the time where I would have stood up and said, you pigs, how dare you come and try to trap me? How dare, that would have been me. I'd have been like, all right, man, let's go. Let's go. You want to talk about truth? I'll tell you something about truth. I'll I'll read every single one of your mails, right? Even in that, Jesus was gracious. He wrote on the ground. He didn't stand up and do what I would have done. He was even gracious towards the guys accusing her. He was gracious to the point where he he didn't even say it out loud. He just wrote on the ground. I don't know how many people could have seen that, but they saw it. So even with people that didn't, that we would all agree probably didn't deserve grace, he was being gracious. And so he displays the perfect mix of grace and truth to them. Can I say this? When we are presented with sin in our lives, we have two responses to it. We can walk away or we can stand and get forgiveness. Now watch what happens. The irony of this situation is those men needed just as much forgiveness as she did. That should change your mind about how you address people in sin. Watch this. I've told this story before about my kids, and I try to do this on a regular basis in between yelling. You know, parenting's real, right? (laughs) So what happens is I try to approach them when they do something wrong, not from just an instructor who's going to point out something wrong. Any of you have a teacher like that that just wrote red marks all over your paper? We're not even allowed to do that anymore, right? Because you're going to hurt the kids' feelings. Um, like they, got, they banned all red ink from schools because the kids were like, I can't handle the red ink on my paper, Mommy. Um, that's a whole other sermon. 
So we, 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 you have some t- teachers that will just write red ink everywhere and not, not tell you how to correct it. Well, don't we love those people in our lives? You're wrong. <laughs> Great. And then there's the other teacher that will come alongside you. Yeah, you're going to get the red ink on your paper, but they're going to put your arm around you and say, listen, you failed this one. Not a big deal. You're not going to fail high school. It's fine. We're going to work through this, and you're going to get a better grade next week. Anybody like that teacher? When I like that teacher, point out to what I did wrong, but then come alongside me and tell me how to get it right. What Shouldn't that be a great picture of the church? We're not just finger pointing. We got our arm wrapped around you. We're not just going to point. We're going to wrap our arm around you and walk you in the right direction. So watch this. The guys that came to Jesus to accuse her needed as much or more grace than she did. So here's what I try to do with the kids. When they do something wrong, I try to say, listen, I'm not perfect either because what the church, what we could get as Christians is we could get the, the perfect image. We're just constantly pointing out wrong when it never looks like we do anything wrong. And we do this with our kids a lot of times. We're, well, boy, I'd have never done that when I was your age. You didn't have the internet when he was his age, right? You're accusing, you're saying you never done do anything that you didn't even have access to do. I would have never tripped, your car wouldn't go that fast. And our kids look up at us and they go, mom and dad, never make a mistake. We can't relate to that because they're always pointing out ours. How do we do grace and truth with our kids? We walk in the room and we say, look, I need as much grace as you do right now. Because even though I didn't have the internet when, you were, when, when I was young, I had the same thoughts you think. The same problems you have. And I need forgiveness today just as much as you do. The same men that could have got forgiveness the same way that woman did when Jesus pointed out to them, they bucked up and walked away. And my prayer is that we would never be like that. And that if you're the only one standing there at the end with Jesus, you're in a good spot. Because standing there at the end with Jesus is a great place for forgiveness. Because he looks up at the woman, the Bible says he straightens up and he says, is there anyone here to condemn you? She said, I don't see anybody. And that's awesome, by the way. And he said, neither do I. Now for you truth tellers, I'm going to, come on, I'm... Paul said, should we sin that grace may abound? I'm not advocating, let's all go out and have a fornication Friday, like new hashtag. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is this. Jesus then followed it up with, go and don't do that anymore. What does he promise us? I will be with you always. I'll be with you to the end. My Holy Spirit's there to guide and direct you and be your counselor and He's saying, I'm not just going to point it out. I'm going to walk with you to figure it out. I'm here with you. I'm in you. And so what he tells her is not, oh, forget it. We'll act like you didn't do it. That's enabling. But Jesus said, no, I'm not, I'm not acting like you didn't do it. I'm saying I'm not here to condemn you. Now let's go and get this right from here on out. Oh, if we could just be like that. I'm not saying parenting would be easier. 
but it might be better. I'm not saying your family relationships have been easier, but they might be better. Less truth bombs and more grace. Come on, let's, we want to come around you. We want to get this thing right. Restoration is the key here. Restoration is the key. I want the band come up. Listen, I believe it's imperative in our world today. Or I don't know if you watch the news, we're just waiting to accuse people. Just give me something I can pin on you. It's, we, see it in, we see it in our social media. We see it everywhere. If I can get a label for you and make it stick, I'm successful. If I can make you look worse than me, I believe this. I believe if the church had the same amount of grace mixed with truth that Jesus did in this, the gospel would be irresistible to people. The gospel would be absolutely irresistible to people. You mean you know my sin and you're not going to call me that? I'm not going to call you that. You mean you know what I did and you're going to still hang out with me? Yeah, because it's a lot easier to hang out with you than self-righteous Christians. You mean, you, you mean I can come to your church and look like this? Yeah, I'd prefer it because then I don't have to dress up. If you wear a suit, it's going to make me look bad. I've actually had trouble explaining to people in the last three months. I have a, there, there, there's people that I've talked to that said, I'm not sure we can come. I'm not sure I'd fit in. And I'm like, dude, you have no idea. And this guy doesn't even look weird. I, I'm, I get a complex because I think he's looking at me thinking you won't fit in. And I'm like, I'm that bad? So, so Jesus came and revolutionized the world. Not by pointing out what everybody did, but by saying there was forgiveness for what everybody did. And when we walk out of these walls, back to our jobs, People are just waiting for the finger. They're waiting for you to point at them. And we have the opportunity to say, listen, Jesus came, was full of grace and truth, and I'm just letting you know I'm imitating him today. And I'm going to get this thing as right as I can get it. And I'm going to give you grace and mercy. The goal is restoration. The goal is that you become a follower of Christ. The goal is that nobody would stand around you and have the opportunity to condemn you. The goal is that Jesus died to set you free. The goal is that you have etern inherit eternal life. The goal, the way I'm going to get there with you is to be as gracious as I can possibly be. How many times am I going to forgive you? I can't even count. How many times am I going to try to restore you? I can't even count. You're important to God enough for him to die in your place. So you're important for me. Amen. Why don't you stand? I'll be honest with you. The people closest to you are sometimes the most difficult people to play this out with. It's easy to give people grace who you don't know. But sometimes the people that have scarred you the deepest are the people that it's the hardest to have grace towards. Sometimes the people who have hurt you the most, 
is the ones you use the most truth on, isn't it? Grace does amazing things. That's why they call it amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, come on, some of you know it, but now I see. You notice that song was not written about law, it was written about grace. Where the law points out our sin, grace covers it. And as a church, we need to have enough grace to cover a multitude of sins. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning. I thank you for people who are willing to extend grace to people who everybody else thinks are unworthy of it. I pray that this church would be a lifeline to people who everyone else has given up on. I pray that as we leave these walls, that you would infuse enough grace into us to cover our sin, but that it would be bubbling up within us to cover those that are around us, God. I pray that we would reach out without, without hesitation, God, to people that need more grace than we are physically able to give them, but your Holy Spirit will empower us to do it, God. I pray that a great harvest would come about for your kingdom. Because we follow the example of Christ, that we mix grace and truth. And that we're willing to see the restoration happen. We thank you for every opportunity, Lord. We pray for him this week. Give us the opportunity. In Jesus' mighty name. Come on, could you give him honor and glory one more time?